the Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. This is uh, a full committee hearing on the nominations of uh, Dr. Christopher Ashley Ford to be the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, and Dr. Yulem Pablet to be Assistant Secretary of State for Verification and Compliance. I thank both of you for being here today and for your willingness to serve our country. Um, if the uh, if the, if the ranking member, uh, with your permission, because uh, I know both Senator Bozeman and Congresswoman Ross Layton in our schedules, I was going to let them uh, give their introductions before I gave them. Oh, absolutely. Opinion. I'm looking forward to hearing from our colleagues, so absolutely. And uh, both because of uh, how far she had to travel here across the Capitol to come over and, and her years of service to our country, if it's okay, uh, Senator, I was going to give the Congresswoman the opportunity to open with her remarks and then I'll recognize you. And she's from Florida. Yeah, the Florida part. <laughs> Actually, I was, uh, as I proudly tell people, I was an intern for her in 1991, so um, uh, not that long ago. We still have high hopes for you, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll get there one day. But anyway, I, uh, I mean, you know, for your high hopes. I don't want to be to read into that. <laughs> it means the commissioner job of the NFL has been taken for now, so I'll also. Anyway, I... Um, I appreciate you being here. Thank you for being with the committee. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, Senators, and, and thank you, Senator Bozeman, for letting me uh, go first. That is very nice of you. Um, today, I have the distinct honor and privilege to introduce uh, to the committee Dr. Yelem Poblet, originally from Florida, now of Virginia, to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I have known Yelem since she was a precocious eight-year-old volunteering on my first campaign for the Florida State House. It was clear then, as it is now, that public service was her true calling. I can attest and promise to this committee and to the entire Senate that Yelem is a nominee who will make us all proud, that she will fulfill the duties and obligations of her office faithfully and vigilantly. She has more than two decades worth of experience on issues directly related to this position to which she has been nominated. Yelem has navigated, executed, and led the legislative agenda on a wide array of foreign affairs and national security matters for the House of Representatives. During her time working for me and on the Committee on Foreign Affairs, she worked in a bipartisan manner to advance U.S. foreign policy interests in virtually every region of the world. So it is quite fitting that Yelem, as President Trump's nominee for the position of Assistant Secretary of State, verification and compliance at the Department of State would be before you today. At a time when verification and compliance are critical to U.S. national security interests, whether for the Int Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, the Syria Chemicals Weapons Use, or to prevent a nuclear-armed Iran, our nation will be well served to have Dr. Yelem Poblet as one of the first lines of defense. She has dedicated her professional life to holding rogue regimes and violators' feet to the fire. My dear colleagues, many of you can attest to this. Having worked with her throughout the years, and I know that Senator Menendez and Mr. Rubio, uh, you have worked with her directly. And thanks to her diligence and acumen, multiple bills targeting some of the most complex and dangerous proliferation threats in Iran, in Syria, in North Korea, in Russia, and elsewhere have become law. I can go on and on about the totality of Yelem's professional achievements, 
because there are so many. But instead, I will just conclude with a note about her personal character and integrity. As a young Hispanic woman working on national security interests and all issues related to the welfare of our nation, Yelem has rightfully earned credibility and respect in her area of expertise and from her peers despite the odds. And all along the way, she has made it one of her primary missions to help so many others achieve their own goals. She has been a mentor and a role model for so many staffers. Yelem has encouraged them to achieve not only their educational goals, but to surpass their potential. And I know there are countless who are grateful for the care, for the support, and for the guidance that Yelem has given to them over the years. In the 20 years plus of working for me, whenever I needed Yelem, she was there, and I shall forever be grateful for that. But she was there also for so many others. And now I believe that our nation needs her more than ever. And I know that she is proud to answer that call. Her commitment to public service is admirable. And her dedication to protecting the United States and our national security interests makes Yelem the ideal nominee for this position. Yelem is accompanied this morning by her supportive husband, Jason Poblet, and watching the proceedings from Miami are her father, Octavio, her mother, Miriam, her sister, Giselle, her brother, Jonathan. I fully support her nomination, and with that, I am honored to introduce Dr. Yelem Poblet. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. Thank you, and thanks so much for being here, and we appreciate that very much. Senator Bozeman, we recognize you to, to uh, present Dr. Ford. Thank you, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin, for the honor of being here to introduce uh, Dr. Yelem Poblet, the President's nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Verification and Compliance. I've known and worked with Yelem for over 15 years and enthusiastically support her confirmation to this important position. I first got to know Yelem as a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I was always impressed by her hard work, dedication to public service, ability to quickly synthesize difficult issues, and her singular focus on developing solutions rather than identifying problems, which is so important. She is a consummate professional who is able to skillfully navigate competing priorities to advance U.S. national security, interest, and priorities. Her past successful efforts on bills targeting Iran, Syria, and North Korea are a testament, among a number of other things, but they are a testament to her skills and her determination. In conclusion, Yelem's policy expertise and political acumen will serve the State Department and our country very, very well, and I wholeheartedly support her confirmation. I thank you for being here as well, and I misspoke. I apologize. Uh, I said you were representing Dr. Ford, but I appreciate uh, two presentations, and, uh, and uh, thank you both for being here and for your time today. And, and, um, and with that, uh, I'll move into my opening statements on, on nomination, and then we'll proceed from there. Uh, if confirmed the but our two colleagues are free to leave if they have other things to do no actually we want you to stay and watch the whole thing but uh, it's on television though so you can I'm on the budget committee so oh you should go yes <laughs> you, run. you need to be there but thank you again both for being here so if confirmed that the two of you will help the United States to craft and, and improve policies seeking to prevent uh, the international spread of nuclear weapons chemical weapons biological weapons and other deadly and destructive technologies and to verify the full compliance of countries that have entered into bilateral or multinational, multilateral agreements 
with the U.S. related to nonproliferation and arms control. While most countries comply with the 1968 Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and other key multilateral agreements aimed at restraining nuclear proliferation, there are certain bad actors which are posing severe challenges to the international order. In North Korea, the Kim regime poses direct threats with its nuclear warheads, ballistic missiles, and conventional military against its neighbors, including South Korea and Japan, as well as against American military forces that are forward deployed in the Indo-Pacific. North Korea, which has a long history of cooperating with Iran on missiles, is also trying to build ICBMs capable of delivering nuclear warheads to American soil. We should also not forget that North Korea used the non Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which, by the way, it left in 2003, as well as President Clinton's 1994 agreed framework as cover to gain years to overtly and covertly acquire the capabilities to build nuclear weapons. In the Middle East, Iranian regimes, nuclear ambitions, and growing missile arsenal pose long-term threats to its neighbors, which include Saudi Arabia and other Gulf nations, as well as to American military forces forward deployed in the region, not to mention, of course, the state of Israel. While the Obama administration was hopeful that its controversial nuclear deal with Iran would lead to restraint and moderation in the Iranian regime's behavior, the opposite clearly is happening. While the regime has a long-term path to getting nuclear weapons, especially when the Iran nuclear deal's key limitations expire in little more than a decade, they are aggressively expanding their missile capabilities in the near term. The regime has also used the financial windfall from this flawed deal to increase its support for terrorist organizations, such as Hezbollah, for sectarian militancy throughout the region, and even for the Assad barbaric dictatorship in Syria. In the light of the controversial nuclear deal with Iran, one of my biggest concerns is that other Middle Eastern nations may seek to enter into a race to develop civil nuclear programs, but with also having breakout capability. In the Europe-Eurasian region, Russia and Vladimir Putin continue to violate the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and to deny some of America's overflight requests under the Open Skies Treaty. This, of course, raises serious questions about the future viability of arms control between the United States and Putin's Russia. I should add that in Syria, the Assad regime, which is now backed by Putin and the Iranian regime, has repeatedly used chemical weapons against its own people. The 2013 Obama-Putin agreement clearly failed to verifiably eliminate all chemical weapons in Syria. There are just so many of the, these are just some of the many serious challenges that the international spread of nuclear weapons and other deadly and destructive technologies pose to the United States and to our allies. Dr. Ford and Dr. Poblet, I look forward to hearing your views on these issues and other issues today. Because if you are confirmed, I cannot stress how important your positions in the State Department will be in helping our nation's leaders chart the right path towards stopping these threats. And with that, now I recognize the, the ranking member. Well, Senator Rubio, first of all, thank you for uh, conducting this hearing and chairing this hearing. I want to Welcome both of our nominees, Ms. Poblet and Dr. Ford. Uh, both of you, we thank you for your willingness to serve our country and increasing this is a very important positions. I also want to uh, acknowledge your past work here in Congress. Dr. Ford, I uh, per personally uh, enjoyed our relationship we, uh, with uh, Senator Corker and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and your critically important work on behalf of our committee. Ms. Poblet, your work on the Senate, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, we appreciate that, and that is a plus. We want you to know that. We appreciate people who have experience here on Capitol Hill. 
I also want to acknowledge your families that are here today, your, your spouses and your daughter that's here, Dr. Ford. Uh, it's uh, impressive to see the family support because we know it's going to be a family uh, sacrifice, the work that you're going to be doing. As I've indicated, these positions are critically important to our national security. They deal with arms control and nonproliferation, uh, vital arms control treaties that we have with Russia. The chairman's mentioned uh, the INF Treaty, which is obviously one of our most important uh, bilateral treaty obligations dealing with uh, arms control and nonproliferation, and the New START Treaty which uh, is, uh, is in its early stages, but a very important treaty, uh, and its long-term implications we'd be interested in hearing today. Multilateral treaties and agreements, including the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and the Chemical Weapons Convention, are also very much on our minds today and have been in the headlines. The ACV Bureau uh, produces an annual report uh, which we look to every year to see the compliance of uh, our treaty partners and, and uh, the, the obligations that they have entered into. And the IS, ISN uh, deals with preventing proliferation. And as the chairman pointed out, we have uh, major issues today in North Korea and Iran that we would welcome uh, your views on. And Dr. Ford, as we both learned recently, you also, if confirmed, will have the responsibility in regards to carrying out certain sanction programs, including that with Russia, uh, particularly their, uh, their military aspects to that. So we look forward to uh, learning more about your views on these important subjects. I'm going to highlight four areas of concern that I hope we can get into during today's uh, nomination hearings. The first issue that requires immediate attention is the INF Treaty. Since 2014, the State Department, in its annual compliance report, has determined that Russia is in violation of its INF obligations to refrain from building ground-based missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Russia has continued to deny it has developed a ground-based cruise missile, has in turn, with no evidence, accused the United States of violating the treaty. I've advocated an approach to Russia's INF violations that emphasizes defensive measures to protect ourselves and our allies uh, from Russia's aggression, but, but does so in a manner that maintains the rule-based order that bolsters European and American security. I want to hear from our witnesses today how they believe the United States should be constructively approaching Russia's INF violations. Second issue deals with New START. By February 2018, the United States and Russia must reduce their strategic nuclear forces to a level agreed to by that treaty. Assuming Russia meets these obligations and the size of Russia's forces are verified through the U.S. on-site inspections, the United States must decide whether it wants to extend the treaty for another five years until 2026. The United States could decide to negotiate a new treaty or end all legal binding nuclear arms control limitations with Russia. I'm eager to hear our witnesses' views on how the United States should move forward on this critical issue given the heightened tension between the United States and Russia. The third issue is one probably that this committee has spent more time on than any other single issue, and that is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA with Iran. In October, President Trump did not make the every 90-day compliance certification outlined in the Inara Act. The President indicated he wanted to work with Congress and our allies to address the JCPOA's flaws, but, quote, 
in the event we are not able to reach solution working with Congress and our allies, then the agreement will be terminated, end quote. I find the President's approach extremely troubling and puzzling. Dr. Ford, as the current senior director of the, the WMD at NSC, I assume you were deeply involved in the administration's view of Iran policies. I hope you can shed some light on the administration's thinking on the future of the JCPOA. Finally, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee reviews and provides oversight on all civilian nuclear cooperation agreements, often referred to as one, two, three agreements with other countries. We've heard credible reports that the Trump administration is considering entering into a civilian nuclear cooperation with Saudi Arabia. In 2009, the United States negotiated a 123 agreement with the UAE, legally renounced its enrichment and reprocessing technologies and capabilities. This was so-called the gold standard. Uh, it's important for this committee to know whether the United States is negotiating a nuclear cooperation with Saudi Arabia and whether it will insist on the same non-proliferation standards that was included in the UAE agreement. So, Mr. Chairman, you see that we have two uh, individuals who are willing to step forward on a very important responsibilities of this country, but there are many questions that we're going to want to ask. Thank you. Thank you uh, to the ranking member. To, to both nominees, your, your opening statements are in the record. I provide you the option of going straight to questions, but you're more than welcome to, to sort of provide I would, uh, them now. I would just encourage you to the extent you can to limit them to the time allotted so that we can get to questions. I know we have a lot of members coming in and out that do want to engage with you on some important matters. And, uh, and so with that, uh, uh, Dr. Pablet, we can start with you. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of this committee, it is an honor and a privilege to be here with you today. I am truly humbled by the trust President Trump and Secretary Tillerson have placed in me via this nomination and I wish to thank Vice President Pence for his support, Senator Boozman, former Congressman Howard Berman, and Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton for having taken the time to be here today or to weigh in on my behalf. Congresswoman ross Leighton, Illy, is more than a former boss. She is a friend. She was the key that opened the door to my almost two decades of public service on the House Foreign Affairs Committee a trajectory which enabled me to undertake new regional or functional portfolios every few years, and as such, helped me develop a greater appreciation for the experiences of State Department personnel. I rose through the ranks to become Staff Director and Chief of Staff, and worked with some extraordinary individuals, many of whom are in the audience here today, or working on this side of the Capitol, some sitting here on the dais or behind the dais. My committee experience enabled me to work on the threat posed by radiological weapons and the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency in securing these materials. To work on nuclear cooperation agreements such as the 123 agreement with the UAE. To exercise oversight of US statutes and of compliance by foreign countries with their obligations and commitments under bilateral and international agreements or commitments to develop policy responses to counter threats from rogue regimes seeking nuclear, chemical, biological weapons capabilities or destabilizing numbers of advanced conventional weapons, and to secure support for the U.S. agenda and priorities in international fora. None of this, however, would have been possible were it not for the Lord's protection and for my family. Words fail me in appropriately thanking my parents and grandparents for their many sacrifices 
and thanking my siblings and my husband, Jason, for their unconditional love and support. I grew up in a family who experienced firsthand the evils of communism. When my mother arrived in the United States from Cuba, she knelt and literally kissed the ground. Gratitude and respect for this great nation prompted my father, a young refugee, to serve in the US Army. My family throughout instilled in me the firm belief that this nation is the last best hope of man on earth, that there are actors who seek to do her harm, and I feel privileged to have the opportunity, if confirmed, to contribute to keeping her safe through the rigorous verification and enforcement of arms control, nonproliferation, and disarmament agreements or commitments. I am fully aware and appreciate that this mandate comes from you, the Congress, when establishing the position for which I have been nominated. Turning to the committee report for guidance, it said, the Assistant Secretary will have overall oversight of policy and resources for verification and compliance regarding not only various treaties, but also executive agreements and commitments, including those falling within the purview of regional bureaus when such agreements or commitments pertain to arms control, nonproliferation, or disarmament. I recognize that Congress sought to ensure that verification and compliance mechanisms would be integrated into these agreements from their inception and be rigorously enforced. In that vein, Senators, I commit to you today that if confirmed, I will dutifully fulfill this mandate and pursue effective verification, seeking to detect violations well before they become a threat to our national security and interests, and before options to address these and to correct or counter the situation are limited. Effective verification must also include detection, documentation, and accountability for patterns of marginal violations or noncompliance. Violations must be appropriately and effectively addressed. Maximizing the expertise of the Bureau, of the Department of State, of our intelligence and resources from across the US government and from partner nations will be a priority as well identifying, applying, spurring, and maximizing new technologies in order to address today's security needs while preparing for the challenges of tomorrow. To conclude, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this committee, let me close by again thanking you for the privilege to appear before you today. I consider this appointment, if confirmed, to be the highest honor and solemn responsibility to undertake and I relish the opportunity to serve our nation. And once again, I'm humbled by the trust and confidence of the President and the Secretary of State via this nomination. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Ford. Uh, thank you. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nomination, nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. I want to thank the President for his confidence in me and for the opportunity, with your approval, of course, to help meet the formidable challenges of protecting the American people and preserving and advancing the national interests of our great republic in the face of ongoing challenges from the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, delivery systems, advanced conventional weapons, and associated materials and technologies. I would also like to thank Secretary of State Rex Tillerson for his support for my nomination.
But I also would like to take a moment to thank my family, my wife, Skylar, and my daughter, Stella Grace, for their love and for their support. Almost all of my professional career has been spent in government or near it in the public policy community, and I think my record demonstrates an unstinting commitment to public service. But nevertheless, it is they, my wife and my daughter, who are really the sun around which my planet revolves. I owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude for all of their patience, their kindness, and their support, especially in the months since I joined the National Security Council staff last January, as you might imagine. And I am pleased beyond words that they are able to join me here today. So Skylar and Stella Grace, I love you and I thank you with all of my heart. I have been, Mr. Chairman, privileged to serve in many positions of responsibility and trust in national security affairs over more than two decades, as indeed it was always my dream to be uh, when I was studying many years ago uh, as an undergraduate at Harvard, getting my doctorate at, uh, at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and getting my law degree at Yale. I've served as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve, as a principal deputy assistant secretary of state at the, uh, uh, what was then the Verification and Compliance Bureau, and as the U.S. government's special representative for nuclear nonproliferation. In addition to that, I've worked for six, excuse me, five different senators on six different committee staffs here in the Senate, including at this very committee. It's been my particular honor to serve the American people over the last 11 months on the National Security Council staff, where I presently run the Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation Directorate and serve as a special assistant to the president. My experience with nonproliferation and related issues goes back many years now, but it is probably my time at the NSC that has best prepared me for the honor of serving, if confirmed, as Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation. I'm proud of the role that I've played in helping this new administration find its footing in this arena and begin to build out a far-sighted and resolute approach to the many challenges that we face. Chairman, although I've never been able to imagine not being deeply involved in working on U.S. public policy and national security issues, the WMD business is not one in which I originally expected to be. Uh, my doctoral dissertation, after all, was on international relations theory and African regional relations. When I practiced law, I worked on large toxic tort class action litigation cases, and I spent years on different congressional staffs doing investigations. My Senate career has included doing intelligence oversight work in the years just after 9-11 and during the global war on terrorism, working on appropriations legislation uh, in uh, around about 2013 in the time of the government uh, shutdown at the time, uh, and has included a broad range of legislative work for this very committee. I've also at various points helped an international war crimes tribunal get itself established in West Africa, produced intelligence analysis as a naval officer, uh, clerked briefly for a federal appellate judge and helped with research on elephant physiology, of all things, while living in a tent in a game park mm -hmm. in Kenya. I've trained at a Zen center in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. I have taught Japanese jiu-jitsu at a dojo here in Washington, and I've written books on naval history and Sino-American relations. But I've been drawn especially to the field of weapons of mass destruction because of its combination of intellectual challenge and technical complexity, and because of its obvious criticality, not just the preservation of US national security, but also of international peace and security, and indeed, potentially, of civilization itself. This admixture of challenge and criticality and urgency has made these issues for me an abiding passion. Preventing the use and spread of weapons of mass destruction is clearly a vital national security interest of the United States. It is critical to slow, stop, or roll back the acquisition of weapons of mass destruction, 
delivery systems, advanced conventional weapons, and associated materials and technologies by state and non-state actors alike. It's critical both to prevent the use of such weapons and to hold those who do use them strictly to account. And it's critical to manage wisely the challenges of stability and deterrence that are inherent in relationships between nuclear weapon states. If confirmed, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to working with State Department colleagues, with stakeholders from across the interagency, with diplomatic counterparts, with the private sector and civil society, and yes, of course, with congressional members and staffs in order to protect and advance the interests of the American people and of international peace and security. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I do welcome your questions and your comments. Thank you, Dr. Thank Ford, you. and you've already made an extraordinary contribution. My wife has an upcoming uh, birthday, and um, you just made a statement about your family that I hope this is not on television, but I'm going to use that in the, in the, uh, in the cards when I, the sun that the planet revol that my planet revolves around. I, that's going on the card next week. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Don't tell anybody where I got it. All right. So I'll begin with the same question for both of you, and that is, uh, and then I'm going to defer to the ranking member in the committee, so I just want to start out with this opening question, because I think it'll cover uh, sort of the scope of, of the hearing, and, and I think maybe set you up for future questions here from other senators. And I'll begin with you, Dr. For What do you consider to be the biggest challenge that you'll be facing if, if and when confirmed? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I would say that the biggest challenge is not in any particular piece of the ISN Bureau's portfolio, but rather in the aggregate challenge that we face in dealing with nonproliferation issues generally. Um, I think we are at a point at this juncture in world history where the global nonproliferation regime faces the accumulated stresses of, of many years of, frankly, of failures of the international community to address proliferation challenges as quickly and effectively as they probably should. We are and have been in something of a race uh, between the proliferators who are trying to develop their threat systems as rapidly as possible um, and the international community, which has been trying to build diplomatic and various other sorts of support to bring pressure upon those proliferators to, to not take such actions, to shore up, buttress, and improve the international institutions and norms and practices that help make it very difficult, uh, if not impossible, to, to advance such systems. Um, and we have not collectively been able to react to the challenge as fast as we have. Um, the system has been placed under a very, under sort of a slow motion stress that it is not yet clear that it can handle. Um, it's part of our challenge today in the policy community to react to these challenges across a range uh, of policy areas, um, including in the areas that I would, uh, if confirmed, have the honor to help, uh, to help manage at the ISN Bureau. Part of it will be shoring up those institutions to slow, stop, and perhaps roll back um, the possession of these technologies and materials and, and, and to impede the progress of threat programs. Part of it is to improve international solidarity against those proliferators. Part of it is also, um, in a slightly different arena, to shore up the alliance relationships that were very important during the Cold War and I think still remain extraordinarily important as nonproliferation tools. Um, and fundamentally, it's to, uh, if necessary, um, position ourselves uh, for that which we cannot prevent from happening, uh, to make sure that we are in a position to, uh, to, to manage the challenges that proliferation presents once it has, once it has taken root. This is a full-spectrum challenge that we have, I think, over the years hitherto not been very good collectively at addressing, and it's going to be a, a full-court press, I think, across the U.S. interagency 
and with international partners to address it uh, in, in the years ahead. The most formidable challenge I think that we face. Dr. Pablet, I have the same question with a slight twist on it in addition to the broader context. If you could a little bit get into, uh, as part of the question of what the biggest challenge would be, uh, the notion or the idea or the reality of the impact that a series of smaller violations taken in their sum on any of these agreements, the cumulative effect of a pattern of smaller violations over an extended period of time, uh, the role they might play in, in your job, uh, as well as answering the, the broader question of what you consider the biggest challenge uh, you'll face if confirmed. Thank you, Senator. First, I have not had the opportunity to consult with the experts in the Bureau, so in response to your question about the biggest challenge is based solely on my uh, interpretation and my observations uh, of these issues and uh, consultations with my would-be predecessors, if confirmed. I would answer it simply as integration of the Arms Control Verification and Compliance Bureau and uh, restoring the Bureau's role, statutory role. And what I mean by that is, uh, Senator Cardin mentioned preventing proliferation. To prevent proliferation, we also need to ensure that we have rigorous verification and compliance measures incorporated from the onset. We must also ensure that there is accountability for those immediate violations as well as patterns of marginal violations. When I refer to patterns of marginal violations in my prepared remarks, it is, again, referring to the mandate that the Congress provided to the Bureau. And unfortunately, when I look at what has transpired in the last few years, I'll use the example of Iran and uh, the JCPOA. It is my understanding that here is a seminal, by many accounts, a seminal politically binding commitment, not a formal agreement, but a politically binding commitment to counter the threat posed by a rogue regime such as Iran. Yet, it is my understanding that neither in the negotiation nor in its implementation was the Bureau that was mandated statutorily tasked with verification and compliance included in these negotiations in the implementation process. I find that to be very troubling. I don't believe that that is uh, the intent of uh, the Congress in, of this committee. And uh, when referring to patterns of marginal violations, again, I must revert back to the JCPOA. In its totality, one can see a troubling response and a troubling set of actions and activities by the Iranian regime. If those go unanswered, if we allow the Iranian regime, just as in the past we've allowed Russia or North Korea or other violators to test the waters of our commitment to these legally binding agreements or politically binding commitments. We are eroding our very priorities to prevent proliferation. Thank you. The ranking member. Uh, Dr. Poblet, let me um, ask you a question in regards to the
comprehensive test ban treaty. We're not a member of that treaty. It's never been ratified. Do you see any circumstances in which the United States would no longer maintain its ban on nuclear explosion test testing? Thank you, Senator. First, I would like to clarify that the administration is undertaking a comprehensive review of all of the arms control agreements, non-proliferation agreements that we are signatories to, parties to, that we have ratified and not ratified. Uh, now, I will not presume to assume what the administration will determine with respect to the uh, Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. What I will say is that uh, in the U.S. deliberations and uh, the U.S. role and perception of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, there is value. Uh, the U.S. writ large, this administration and others, have identified certain components of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, such as... I'm the, trying to get to the specific answer. Sure. Is there any circumstances that you would support the United States giving up its moratorium on nuclear testing? No, sir. Thank you. That, that, I appreciate that answer. Uh, New START, if Russia is in compliance, if they get down to the numbers that are required, would you recommend a five-year extension of the New START Treaty? Senator, as you mentioned in your opening statement, uh, this is still in the early stages. Russia, the Russian Federation, I understand, is on track to meet the obligations, the central tenets of New START in February of next year. That has yet to be confirmed. That has yet to be seen. It's yet to be verified. But we'll have inspections that we'll be able to determine whether, in fact, they've reached that. If, in fact, the report shows that they have reached the required limit, do you believe we should extend the uh, new start for the five-year provision? Again, Senator, it would be premature of me to get ahead of the administration's review. However, specifically uh, to your question, it hasn't happened yet. And again, I would be getting ahead of the facts. Well, I understand I you have do. to, and we've had nominees who've come here, have given their views, and the administration's come out with different views, and they support the administration's view. I understand that. But you are certainly aware of the New START treaties and its obligations, et cetera. If, in fact, there is compliance, do you believe it's a useful treaty for us to continue for an additional five years? Just asking your view on it. I understand that the administration will make the final judgments. It is a useful treaty if compliance by the Russian Federation is sustained, verifiable, and accounted for. We still have a few years before a determination needs to be made as to whether or not to extend the, uh, the New Star Treaty. So all I can say to you, sir, is that I will commit to ensuring that there is the necessary information that I put forth, that information that has been verified, confirmed, and documented to the policymakers that I will build the case one way or the other. If there are violations, I will build that case and put it forth to the policymakers. Yeah. If there are, if there is compliance, Th really, I will do so as well. Yeah, I understand. The question is not whether there's compliance or non-compliance. I'm assuming there's compliance. Otherwise, obviously, we have a different issue. I was trying to assess your views 
as to whether this agreement should be extended if there is compliance by Russia. And I, as I understand it, you're not prepared to make a, a, a statement on that at this time. Sir, I think it is too early to tell okay. since the Russian Federation has not met its uh, essential well, tenets just yet, yeah. just yet. Uh, there is value to intrusive inspections. There is definitely value to the data sharing uh, that is encompassed in the New START Treaty. However, it is too early to make a recommendation when uh, we don't yet have a uh, definitive conclusion on uh, compliance by well, both we, parties. We do know that Russia is out of compliance with the INF. We do know that. that. That determination has been made. How do you believe we should proceed in regards to Russia's violations in its GLCM missile program? Senator, simply, we have a three-pronged approach. It is my understanding that the U.S. continues to engage the Russian Federation either through the uh, Special Verification Commission, through allies uh, at the highest levels to try and convince the Russian Federation to come into compliance. I also know that uh, we are engaging our allies and partners who are directly affected by the Russian Federation's violations of the INF. And lastly, we are considering a number of uh, countermeasures, uh, some of which uh, have the congressional imprimatur, uh, such as economic countermeasures. Our focus, however, given that our responsibilities are international obligations to our allies and partners, uh, must also include robust missile defense uh, capabilities to ensure that we are in compliance, not just with our INF commitments, but our global commitments to our allies and partners. So, and the National Defense Authorization Act provides authorizations for defense against Russia's activities in regards to the missile program, uh, which is something I strongly support. Do you believe we should seek compliance with the INF by Russia, not try to escalate the violations by the U.S. producing a weapon that would also be in violations of the, of the range of the INF? Well, Senator, if confirmed, what I can commit to you is that any countermeasures involving the range of U.S. government agencies, that it will be my responsibility and my commitment to ensure that the United States is treaty compliant and that whatever measures are undertaken do fall within the construct of a legally binding agreement, which is the INF. I know the Russian Federation has made very false claims against the U.S. Uh, trying to uh, create a narrative that uh, the United States uh, capabilities of missile defense uh, platforms in Romania and Poland under the European phased adaptive approach are in violation of INF. Uh, but the U.S. position is that interceptors are not uh, a violation of the INF given their purely defensive uh, capabilities. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Chairman Rio. Thank you, both of you, for being willing to serve our country. Mr. Ford, you made a comment. I think I took my notes right, but I want to repeat it if I didn't so you can correct it or amplify on it. You said we've conf we're confronting a time now where we're facing the aggregate accumulation of failures to deal with non so many nonproliferation issues. I believe I got that right. Did I get that right? Uh, that sounds correct to me, Senator. 
Yeah, I, I happen to think you're right. I, I come from the state that was re was represented here in the Senate for years by Sam Nunn. Was on this committee under Dick Luger. The, Dick Luger and Sam Nunn are the two most prominent Americans in nonproliferation that I think we have alive today in this country. I think they would agree with you that we've accumulated some failures and it's time for us to have some successes. Should you be confirmed, which I believe you will, what are you going to focus on to put an end to the failures and begin some successes? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think in that respect, I'd identify two things that correlate to, I think, two of the, the most significant failures that we collectively, not just in the U.S., but in the international community have had. Um, one of the challenges, of course, uh, is, uh, well, most obviously, is North Korea. Um, when I was last in the State Department, it was around about the time when uh, we confronted them with evidence of their cheating under the so-called Agreed Framework of 1994. Um, they, in response to being caught with their hand in the proverbial cookie jar, pulled out of the NPT and have been busily building up their missile forces and their nuclear weapons ever since. Um, clearly, getting a hand on that somehow has got to be an enormous priority. It is the single most horrific sort of bleeding sore on the global nonproliferation regime today. Um, the ISN Bureau has, in that respect, very important responsibilities related to the implementation of nonproliferation sanctions against the North Korean regime. Um, and certainly, if confirmed, it would be a subject of enormous focus and emphasis for me uh, as Assistant Secretary to make sure that we were doing absolutely everything that we can do in support of the President's, uh, what we call the maximum pressure strategy of using every available diplomatic, economic, sanctions, law enforcement, financial, and other tool to maximize the pressure upon the North Korean regime in ways that have not yet hitherto been done and to bring international partners along with us in that respect to make sure that they face, finally, at long last, an incentive to make a different strategic choice. So that would be the highest priority, and I would also identify the slightly longer term but also extremely important challenge, Senator, of addressing the Iranian proliferation challenge. Um, one of the accumulated problems, I think, that the global nonproliferation regime faces is the legitimation of fissile material production in Iran, a country which, of course, uh, for a long time had a very active nuclear weapons program. Um, managing the challenge that that presents to the nonproliferation regime is going to be an ongoing one for all of us. Negotiating a better way to approach Iranian proliferation challenges, especially over the long term, uh, in the years in which the current restrictions under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear deal um, are set to evaporate and leave Iran in, the, in, in a place where they could build up in essentially any size nuclear program they want. That is not an acceptable nonproliferation uh, path, I think, from the United States perspective, and it would be an important focus of effort if I were confirmed to be Assistant Secretary for ISN uh, to help lead the diplomatic charge to bring that threat finally uh, under control in an enduring, not merely a temporary fashion. I think you're exactly correct. I think Senator Nunn and Senator Luger would have said the same thing where they sing in this room today. The two challenges that face us are the Iranians in the joint agreement and, and the North Koreans, where we've almost been an enabler in some sense by looking the other way, allowing them to get away with some of the things that they have. Ms. Paulette, you made a very interesting statement, which I also want to give you a chance to correct if I wrote it down wrong because I, I was trying to write it while I was listening. You said you were somewhat shocked by the non-inclusion of the secretary, your secretary's department that you're going to replace in the JCPOA. Was there not any inclusion in the State Department of any State Department personnel during the JCPOA negotiations as far as compliance issues are concerned? 
Thank you, Senator. It is my understanding after having spoken with a range of uh, former and current State Department officials, including the uh, would-be predecessors, the former assistant secretaries for verification and compliance, that uh, no, that bureau was not engaged. And to go even further, if I may, Senator, on uh, the Iran missile threat, for example, it turns out that the uh, Verification Compliance Bureau has virtually zero role in the implementation and uh, verification of uh, Iranian compliance with the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 regarding Iran's ballistic missile capabilities. At most, the Verification Compliance Bureau's role with respect to Iranian missile threats or North Korean missile threats uh, is reassuring our allies, engaging, fortifying via the strategic dialogues with the Republic of Korea, with Japan, and uh, really focusing on uh, ballistic missile defense uh, to protect against those uh, emerging threats, growing threats uh, from those two rogue regimes. I hope if confirmed and given the opportunity to be a strong advocate uh, for the Bureau and ensuring that its role is restored to its statutory commitment, its statutory guidance, which is to be an integral part, perhaps not the lead, as regional bureaus tend to take the lead on these, uh, on these agreements, on these negotiations, but certainly to be at the table and make sure that verification and compliance is not set aside uh, and is considered a priority. We can't have executive orders, national emergencies with respect to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and not have the Verification and Compliance Bureau. Uh, if I may just uh, indulge for one second. It has been said in the compliance report, which Senator Cardin mentioned in his opening statement, uh, it has been said by a range of administration officials that failure to hold accountable, failure to ensure that verification and compliance is an integral part from the declarations by the target nations to the implementation of agreements and throughout negotiations will only help perpetuate the problem and will only help fuel further proliferation. Mr. Chairman, I know I'm over time, but I, I allowed her to indulge herself in her answer. I'm going to indulge myself in just a little amplification on that. Your answers were fantastic, and I appreciate both of them because no, no question North Korea and the JCPOA are the two formidable challenges we have to meet in the future. Also, with Senator Cardin's questioning on New START, I was here when we negotiated New START, did the hearings here, and the one thing about New START, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we did some breakthroughs in the compliance area that we'd never done any treatment before. We have more ability in terms of New START to verify the, whether the Russians are or are not complying than we have in any other agreement, collective group of agreements combined. If the JCPOA had had even a smidgen of the compliance requirements that the New START has, we wouldn't be worried about that today. So I, I just want to commend both of you and your answers and hope you'll follow through on that direction in your jobs. If you do, you will go down in history as two of the best appointees this president has made. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your past service to the country and for your willingness to be considered for these very important positions. Um, Dr. Ford and Dr. Poblet, Secretary Tillerson has said that Iran is complying with the JCPOA. Um, Dr. Poblet, I understood you to say that you think they are in violation. Can you describe, did I understand that correctly, and can you describe what those violations are? 
Thank you, Senator, for the opportunity to clarify. What I was uh, focusing on were patterns of marginal violations. Uh, the director, the Secretary General, the uh, Director General of the IEA, as you mentioned, the Secretary of State, have said that Iran is in compliance. But really what the IEA Director General has said is that it is not a material breach. But it, uh, the Director General has, in fact, mentioned marginal breaches. The President also delineated a number of marginal breaches. Several members of this committee have also done so. Okay, so, so that's, that's what you were referring to when you right, were suggesting violations. Right. Um, Dr. Ford, do you agree with Dr. Poblet relative to that concern? Uh, Thank you, Senator. The, one of the things that we have tried to do um, as, as resolutely as we can over the last uh, 11 months or so since the new administration took office is to try to ensure that the JCPOA is interpreted as strictly as possible uh, and that it's enforced as rigorously as possible. In addition to all of the other work that we're trying to do with respect to addressing the Iranian proliferation challenge over the long term, one of the things that we have tried to do in the joint commission process under the JCPOA, for instance, um, is to work with our European partners in particular um, to end pre-existing um, approaches to sort of meeting in the middle when Iran in its continual efforts to sort of push the envelope of JCPOA interpretation uh, would ask for something that uh, is on the margins of what it clearly should, you know, perhaps slightly beyond where it should actually be allowed to go. Um, there was a degree of compromise in approaching those things in the past, which one can see from the publicly released Joint Commission documents that were published, I believe, last December. Um, we have, uh, we are not in the meeting in the middle business anymore, uh, and working with our Joint Commission partners, from whom we have been pleased to get very good support, uh, we have been taking a much more strict line on those things within the JCPOA since last April. I, I appreciate that, and I think all of us agree that we want to hold Iran accountable. But if the administration and if the State Department believes that Iran is not complying, why hasn't the administration invoked the dispute resolution provisions of the agreement? For either of you. Well, Senator, I've only been uh, part of the administration since... Uh, you, you can just tell me what you know. You don't have to give me the <laughs> response from the administration. Although, Dr. Ford, you were part of the NSC, so I would assume this came up on the NSC and you might have discussed whether to invoke those provisions. Dr. Ford. <laughs> sure. Um, yes, we have um, many times and continually over the last uh, you know, year or so um, discussed Iranian compliance. Uh, at the moment, the, uh, uh, the assessment is that Iran is complying with its obligations under the JCPOA. Um, as, I, as I indicated, we are trying to keep them from sort of nudging up to those lines in ways that they felt free to do before. Um, and I should also point out that uh, in the president's speech on October 13th, um, he declined to recertify um, under the ANARA statute, uh, not on the basis of Iranian compliance questions, but on the basis of a different ANARA certification criterion set forth in the statute, whereby he determined that he, in his view, it was not that the, the, the sanctions relief given to Iran uh, under the JCPOA was not proportional and appropriate in light of what it was that we got from Iran under that deal. That there are multiple criteria under Inara, he chose that particular one, um, and it has been his direction to the administration to try to work with Congress and international partners 
to better address these challenges going forward, but remaining for now certainly within the JCPOA construct in order to use that remaining within the agreement in order to leverage international support, not just in addressing long-term proliferation challenges, but, but also the range of Iranian malign acts outside the JCPOA. Right, and I think we would all agree that Iran is engaging in those malign acts outside of the JCPOA, but that's not, they are not issues that are covered under the JCPOA. And, and I understood you to say that you believe that um, Iran is in compliance and that's why the administration hasn't invoked the dispute resolution um, mechanism. Can I ask you, Dr. Ford, if you agree, and, and maybe I misunderstood what you were saying, Dr. Poblet, but I understood you to say, to, in answer to Senator Cardin's question about nuclear testing, that you believe we should continue the moratorium on nuclear testing. Um, is that, did I understand that correctly? A yes or no answer would be appreciated. That is correct, Senator. Do you agree with that, Dr. Ford? I'm yes or no? I'm sorry, Senator, do I agree that... That we should continue the moratorium on nuclear testing? I see no reason to do otherwise at this time, Senator. Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask you both, one of the concerns that I have expressed, as have other members of this committee, have been relative to the proposed reorganization that's going on at the State Department. And you're both taking over very important um, bureaus at the State Department. Can you tell me if you've been consulted on the reorganization plan, um, either of you? Uh, no, Senator. Dr. Ford? Uh, I, am, I am not privy to what the redesign will look like. I've not consulted on this, Senator. And if you haven't been, are there any concerns or changes that you believe should be made to the Bureau should, that you're gonna be heading should you be confirmed? Senator, as I mentioned previously, my goal is, if confirmed, to first meet with all of the personnel that is uh, currently in the Bureau to seek their guidance, their insight, uh, their perspectives on what they perceive to be the challenges of the Bureau and the needs of the Bureau. And if confirmed, I hope to uh, next year be actively engaged and have the opportunity to engage the Secretary directly on these redesigned budgetary and uh, related issues. Well, thank you. That seems like a very reasonable approach to me. Dr. Ford? Um, thank you, Senator. I mean, my contact with the ISN Bureau is, is quite routine in my current responsibilities, but I am less familiar with the details of how it is staffed and organized internally um, with respect to how it meets its current challenges. Um, at this point, what I, what I should point to, and that is something to which uh, Senator Cardin alluded earlier, um, it has come to my understanding that relatively recently, pursuant to the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA, as its acronym, I think, goes. Um, I don't know who's responsible for the acronyms, but uh, that's an impressive one. Uh, that the Secretary has identified the ISN Bureau as, being, as having the lead responsibility for administering Section 231 of that statute, which has to do with putting sanctions of various sorts upon those who engage in what are called significant transactions with entities affiliated with the Russian defense and intelligence sectors, as set forth in the Secretary's guidance, I believe, just a month ago. Um, this is an area which 
with which my current NSC responsibilities haven't had much to do yet, so I'm learning this area uh, as well, but it is my understanding that um, this now will be a part of the responsibilities of the ISN Bureau, um, and it is not something that the Bureau has hitherto been involved in doing. So you know, certainly from this vantage point, I think one of the more important initial things for me to look at, if confirmed, would be to make sure that appropriately staffing and managing these new CATSA responsibilities under Section 231 um, are appropriately handled in a way that allows ISN to fulfill those responsibilities well, um, but also to do so in a way that do not, does not detract from the core missions of the Bureau in fighting proliferation. So that would be, I think, certainly one management challenge that is visible immediately out of the box, as it were. Well, thank you. I, I certainly hope you will, like Dr. Poblet, um, engage with members of the Bureau and respond to concerns um, before making any sweeping changes. Absolutely, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to, uh, to, to both of you. I wanted uh, uh, Dr. Poblet to ask a follow-up question on the verification and monitoring measures that are being used in the JCPOA. We, we heard reference earlier that if only they were as good as some of our other agreements like New Start, we'd be in good shape. Uh, my impression of the, uh, the IAEA uh, protocols is that they are uh, more prevalent, uh, more in number, more uh, in high tech, in every possible way improvements on, on our previous arms control agreements. But can you just uh, comment a little bit on the extensive measures that are being used for real-time monitoring? Thank you, Senator. It is my understanding, based on uh, some of the recent statements made by the Director General of the IEA, that uh, it is their assessment that currently they have some of the most rigorous monitoring and verification capabilities that they have had uh, in recent years. However, as, as you well know, verification and compliance is an evolving process. As we develop new technology, as we look at uh, addressing new threats, and uh, again, trying to look at not just what is known, but trying to anticipate what is the unknown. And in the case of Iran and the JCPOA, given Iran's history, it is uh, incumbent upon us to not just rely on the IAEA, not just provide support to the IAEA, but also spur our own uh, efforts at identifying and developing technologies that uh, will address the unknown. Everything from uh, trying to identify ghost particles to the lowest possible yield of uh, nuclear material. Thank you, thank you. And I've been very impressed by some of the, uh, the new mechanisms that are being uh, developed uh, to do like real-time monitoring of the gas flows in the enrichment uh, location in order to make sure that they stay below the 3.67%. Uh, so uh, I know the IAEA is doing everything it can to, to utilize those new provisions. The um, Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, states that each of the parties undertakes to pursue negotiations in good faith, quote, on a treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. It's referring to nuclear disarmament. Is, is the U.S. currently undertaking such negotiations? Adam Poblet. 
I am not aware, Senator, of uh, what the status is of the U.S. Uh, with respect to your question. Okay. It's one of the three, three pillars of the NPT. Are there various ways that you think those three pillars could be strengthened? Again, Senator, I would uh, not presume to engage until I've had the opportunity to discuss this matter of confirmed with the legal experts, with the technical experts, the scientific experts, uh, to ensure that I have a holistic view of what the opportunities are with respect to the MPT. Those, those three pillars are nonproliferation, peaceful use of nuclear power, and disarmament. And they're meant to, to bridge the very difference between nuclear power states and non-nuclear power states is, is that bridge which puts, puts different responsibilities on different parties to the treaty, one which you fully support? Senator, I fully support looking at the treaty in a holistic fashion. In fact, uh, one of the concerns uh, that I had uh, before, during, and uh, after with respect to Iran or North Korea, but uh, particularly with respect to Iran, is that when predating the JCPOA, when Iran was in violation of its safeguard agreements, when Iran was in violation of its overarching NPT obligations, that uh, the focus was still on its, quote, inalienable right uh, to peaceful civilian uh, nuclear energy without taking into consideration that there are other articles of the NPT that hold parties accountable for violations of their safeguard agreements and their overarching MPT obligations. So I definitely agree that the MPT cannot be approached from a myopic standpoint, that we must look at all of the articles of the MPT in tandem. Uh, thank you. When I asked you about Article 6 and our responsibilities to be engaged in uh, conversations about complete disarmament of uh, nuclear disarmament, you, you indicated you weren't familiar with such ongoing discussions, but there has been in the past a P5 process that at least constitutes a, a forum for such discussions, um, discussions at least pointing in the direction of the possibility of pursuing the responsibilities under, under Article 6. Do you support uh, re-engaging a P5 process? Well, sir, I believe that it's always helpful to engage with our allies, uh, particularly nuclear weapon states. I believe that given the current security environment, however, the focus uh, needs to be on countering the proliferation by non-nuclear weapon states. The uh, P5 have demonstrated, uh, most of them being uh, democracies, but uh, they have demonstrated to be fairly responsible uh, stakeholders uh, perhaps uh, with the exception of uh, Russia and China, but generally the P5 have demonstrated to be responsible stakeholders. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Poblet, Dr. Ford, great to be uh, with uh, each of you. Can either of you tell me whether the IAEA inspectors have inspected the military sites in Iran since the implementation of the so-called Iran nuclear agreement? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, the specific locations of uh, inspected sites are treated within the IAEA system as safeguards confidential, and they do not publicly report that. For it, through various means, we have, uh, 
frequently some insight into what the IEA has been, um, has been able to accomplish. And according to the Director General, um, they have not been refused so far any request to visit any site at which they have had reason to believe illicit activity has been occurring or which they felt it necessary to visit in order to fulfill their monitoring and, and, and verification responsibilities under the JCPOA. Um, it would be easier to talk about uh, what we think we know about IAEA activity in this respect in a closed session, um, but so far the IAEA has been very clear that they do not feel that they have been rebuffed in any inappropriate way thus far. So that was a very precise and much appreciated answer. Um, the short answer is you don't know because uh, it's, it's difficult to differentiate between military sites and other sites because IAEA doesn't release that information. Is, is that a correct recapitulation of, of how you started your response? Um, I, I would say the safest way to characterize it, Senator, is that it would be a much easier conversation to have if we were in closed session so that it would be possible to discuss information that it is not possible to discuss uh, in public. Okay, that's, that's fair. Doctor? Do you have anything to add? Well, Senator, as the IEA uh, has said, they have not been denied uh, requested access. Now, I believe that uh, you might be referring to what is known as the T-section of uh, the JCPOA. While the IEA may feel that it has not been denied, the question rests on whether or not if they were to ask whether or not they have asked uh, for specific access to these uh, designated military facilities uh, that some of which uh, were part of the uh, possible military dimensions questions that the IEA had prior to the JCPOA uh, and to whether or not uh, they will have the authority um, if they press the Iranian regime to gain that access. Uh, that uh, is still a subject for discussion. So do, do we know, and can you tell me in this setting, whether the IAEA inspectors have requested access to a designated military site in Iran? The IAEA Director General has said that uh, they have not been denied access to any facilities that they have requested. As to whether or not those requests have included specific military facilities, I do not know, sir. Is that information that you have access to? In my current role, I do not have access to uh, certain intelligence information and- Dr. Uh, Ford, do you have access to that information? I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, Senator, I do have insight into some of these questions uh, with which I'd be happy to talk to you in a different form, if that's all right, sir. Okay. I will take you up on that. I'm, I'm grateful for volunteering that, and I just note that uh, it's pretty difficult for us to strictly and robustly verify compliance um, if we don't have answers to these questions and, and um, uh, more specifically, if, if uh, the military sites have been designated effectively no-go zones for IAEA inspectors. So I see I have, uh, my, my time is dwindling down, but uh, I'll turn very quickly to uh, Iran's ballistic missile program. In addition to their development over the years of WMD, their delivery systems, 
um, have, have uh, caused great consternation for those of us who want to keep the region and uh, the world safe and secure. In fact, Iran is the largest ballistic missile force in the Middle East. They can hit targets up to 2,000 kilometers uh, away, including uh, Israel, our good friend, and, and the thousands of U.S. troops in the region. Uh, Dan Coates, who of course is our Director of National Intelligence, reiterated that uh, the community's assessment is that, quote, Tehran would choose ballistic missiles as its preferred method of delivering nuclear weapons if it builds them. He also noted progress on Iran's space program could shorten a pathway to ICBM uh, because space launch vehicles use similar technologies. Um, Dr. Ford, what's your assessment of Iran's ballistic missile program? Uh, well, I certainly would not gainsay anything that, uh, that uh, Director Coates has said. I think that I think you've hit the nail on the head, Senator, in, uh, in in pointing to that as a focus of enormous concern. Iran does have a very extensive um, missile program. It has been engaged in a very elaborate and fast-paced uh, program of missile testing. It has been building out missiles across a range of capabilities, uh, increasing the accuracy of those that they possess. Um, and I should also point out they have been involved in proliferating missile technology, um, supplying missiles to uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, for example, and to Houthis in, in Lebanon. This is, so this is not just a question of indigenous threats in Iran, but of the spread of such threats across the region as a part of Iran's pattern of destabilizing behavior. So I'd like to follow up with each of you. Um, if you have a very brief response uh, to the following question, uh, I'd, I'd be grateful. Uh, the proliferation of weapons out of Iran or the proliferation of, of uh, material and expertise from, say, North Korea into Iran, are there additional things that we as a, a nation should be doing to address those very important issues? Briefly, Senator, one, there are a myriad of uh, U.S. statutes uh, that address not just the individual proliferation by rogue regimes, but the collaboration between these uh, rogue regimes. I would uh, only add a point of caution. As the focus is, and rightly so, on increasing uh, crippling and imposing crippling pressure on the North Korean regime, it is critical that we not lose sight of Iran. It is uh, troubling to see that uh, many of our partners and allies who are hyper-focused on the North Korean threat because they would be directly in the line of fire, so to speak, uh, from Pyongyang are also now shifting gears and are investing and engaging economically with the Iranian regime. You cannot delink the two. What benefits one ultimately uh, benefits the other. Um, Senator, to take Iran as an example, um, I think uh, it's precisely uh, those regional proliferation threats that are one of the multiple um, centers of focus for the new Iran strategy that the administration has just announced in October and which the interagency is in the process of building out uh, even as we speak. Um, it's a critical part of that strategy to try to approach the, reign of, the range of Iranian malign acts, including missile proliferation, support for uh, terrorist organizations, regional destabilization, such as support for um, uh, the Assad regime and the Syrian civil war and those sorts of things. From the perspective of the ISN Bureau, if confirmed as Assistant Secretary, one of my more important roles would be to support counterproliferation work in, on precisely these sorts of areas. 
Uh, when I joined the State Department uh, many years ago now at the Verification and Compliance Bureau, those were the early days of what was what is still known as the Proliferation Security Initiative. It was an effort to bring international partners into um, to interdicting weapons of mass destruction related trans you know, shipments worldwide. Um, since those days and the very early days of, of PSI, the US interagency has built up a very formidable interagency capability to impede progress on threat systems using a full range of tools, diplomatic, financial, law enforcement, and so forth. I would be a, a proud uh, inheritor of all the work that's been done uh, in that respect and would certainly look for every available way to, uh, to up our game, as it were, in order to impede those systems more effectively. I thank our witnesses. I thank the chairman for indulging me. Thank you. I'm very pleased to recognize my friend, the senator from New Jersey, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, given the proliferation of concerns that we have seen over the past year regarding rogue regimes, uh, developments of nuclear arsenals, increased ballistic missile testing, and potential violations of international agreements, uh, I, I would say that these appointments are well long overdue. Um, let me extend a personal welcome to Dr. Poblet, who I've known for years, uh, going back to my tenure in the House of Representatives when she served as the staff director for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, for my friend uh, Eliana ross Lettinen. Congratulations on your nomination. Congratulations to you, Mr. Ford. Uh, as I noted, rogue nations and non-state actors continue to present threats to the United States and its allies, and it's imperative that the United States continue to lead the world in combating the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and curtail the ability of nefarious actors to utilize some of the world's most dangerous tools. Now, I did not support the JCPOA. Uh, I don't believe that it was sufficient in its construction uh, to prevent Iran from ever developing a nuclear weapon, and I am concerned about elements of it where there will be a lifting in just a few short years of some other elements that are incredibly important. However, I believe it is important uh, for the United States to demonstrate leadership and reliability on the world stage. And as long as Iran is upholding its commitments under an agreement, which I didn't think was a standard we should have agreed to, but as long as it's holding up, it serves our interest to continue to work with our international partners to ensure robust enforcement of the deal. So what I do want to ask you about is, how will you seek to engage with our international partners to curtail Iran's ability to stockpile and disseminate conventional arms and ballistic missiles to its proxy networks around the Middle East once the UN lifts the embargo and terminates restrictions on ballistic missile procurement and development? Oh, Senator, I, I very much share your concern um, at what the uh, at the proliferation challenges that we may well face once the restrictions of UN Security Council Resolution 2231, for example, and the arms provisions therein uh, expire. Uh, that is a major focus of, uh, it's becoming a major focus, of course, as you will not be surprised to learn of our Iran strategy now. Um, and addressing that, I, uh, I would be a major focus of concern um, if I were confirmed as Assistant Secretary for the ISN Bureau. Um, one of the, the, the hopes that we have um, by remaining uh, pursuant to the President's direction, remaining um, at the moment within the JCPOA is precisely to use that step of remaining within the deal in order to make sure that we maximize our ability to work with international partners to address a range of threats in the proliferation space and more broadly on Iran and the issue of the uh, dramatic buildup of Iranian uh, missile and advanced conventional weapons capabilities and its proliferation 
of these capabilities to other regional players, uh, proxy forces and terrorist organizations, for instance, um, will have to be a focus of that concern. It is our hope that we can work successfully with our partners to maximize well, the pressure. They seem to be reticent. Uh, I've seen the Europeans through their, uh, in essence, their foreign minister suggest that they are not interested in any other sanctions. Problem with this is that if we wait for the lifting moment of these sanctions, it will be far too late. And so I hope that the administration and through you will take a robust uh, set of actions to engage our partners to say we cannot wait for the moment of the twilight to ultimately engage with the advent of what comes next. And that needs to be taken advantage of now. And I think actually that, as I suggested at a meeting at the White House with some of my colleagues, there is an opportunity to create leverage uh, as a result of some of the president's actions to move in that direction. The longer we wait, the more difficult it will be and the more consequential to Iran's destabilization of the region. So uh, I hope to hear, for example, I'm, I'm very proud of what the Senate did. I was one of the instruments of it in the sanctions legislation we passed, but I haven't seen that legislation be robustly used by the administration. They need to use the very tools we gave them that passed 98 to 2. We don't get many things around here to pass 98 to 2. That means you have the support of the United States Senate and of the Congress in giving you tools which up to date, I have to be honest with you, I haven't seen it. So, you know, when you want to do something to Iran to curtail its nefarious activities, the wherewithal exists already. And so uh, I would hope that we, we would do that, and uh, I'd like to get your response to that. And then finally, uh, on North Korea, uh, I say we haven't addressed China. And it seems to me that it, on this much I agree with the president, China, is clearly the pathway to do something as it relates to North Korea. They're the ones that hold the resources of North Korea to change their mind. But I'm not quite sure what the administration's philosophy is here. First, I thought we were going to challenge China to do the right thing. Then we were going to cajole it to do the right thing. But now we seem to be embracing it without it doing anything. We could declare it a currency manipulator. We could sanction banks that are pursuing uh, access to North Korean money. We could ultimately look at some of our trading statuses, but I haven't heard a whimper about that. So talk to me about sanctions and how you're going to use them, especially since we now have uh, the secretary has closed the Office of Sanctions Coordinator. What role is sanctions going to play in countering our adversaries' abilities to proliferate dangerous weapons? And how are we going to approach China so we can deal with the question of North Korea short of military confrontation? Uh, there's a lot to respond to there, Senator. Thank you. Um, I think I would say that I completely share your concerns that we must not wait until it is too late. We must not wait until the expiration point of key restrictions on uh, Iranian threat programs, for example, in the Security Council resolution, just as I think we should not wait to try to address the challenge of putting enduring limitations upon the, the size and scope of Iran's nuclear program in the years in which the JCPOA's limits on that program uh, come to expire. Um, so I completely agree the time to start working on those things is now. 
and that is exactly why this is an important part of the Iran strategy that we are currently building out. Um, so I hope that you will not be disappointed in seeing how we handle that, but rest assured, Senator, that we are committed. Uh, I am personally committed, would be uh, thus, uh, as Assistant Secretary, have confirmed, uh, to making sure that those processes of trying to work out those enduring solutions begin sooner rather than later in order to maximize their chances of success. With respect to sanctions on Iran, um, we have been, in the last 11 months, I think, very forward-leaning on this, uh, going back to the very, uh, the, uh, the very, I think it was in February or, or March, you may recall the, uh, the phrasing about putting Iran on notice. We have been working the targeteers at the Office of Foreign Asset uh, Control at the Treasury Department as, uh, you know, virtually 24-7, making them work extraordinarily difficult and uh, hours and challenges to make sure that so-called sanctions packages are developed at, uh, at utmost speed. Um, they are a low-density, high-demand uh, force, as they say in the military, because there is an important demand for sanctions across the proliferation space with North Korea, with Iran, also with regard to human rights issues in Venezuela and elsewhere. Um, but we are, we are processing and using the sanctions tools, which we are delighted to have from Congress as fast as it is possible to process those packages. I must say personally, Senator, when I joined the State Department back in 2003, um, I'm proud of the role that we played at that time. At being, in being very forward-leaning on using proliferation sanctions to try to change the behavior of proliferation entities around the world. We felt it was important to confront proliferator facilitating entities with a choice. They could continue to be involved with the bad guys, as it were, or they could continue to be involved with the world's largest economy here in the United States. They could not do both at the same time. Forcing more of them to make more of those choices, I think, had a measurable impact at the time. We were very proud of that. And since those days, thanks to the work of this committee and others, um, the toolkit available for imposing sanctions has expanded considerably. Um, as have the number of executive orders devoted to providing those tools uh, to our foreign policy apparatus as well. Um, so rest assured, we, uh, I would be, and uh, I think we are already very firmly committed to using every tool available. And finally, with respect to China, um, I think it is, uh, it is safe to say that, that present policy continues to use a mix of cajoling and pressures. Um, you will notice in the implementation of sanctions that Chinese entities have begun to appear amongst those who have been sanctioned for engagements with North Korea that ultimately facilitate the North Korean weapons of mass destruction and missile programs. They have no protected status anymore. Um, this is a process of gradually working with Chinese interlocutors to get them to move in the way that they do need to move if there is going to be a solution here. And although I would freely agree that they are not where they need to be at this time, it is also true that they are doing a great deal more than they used to. It is still insufficient, but there has been some Chinese movement on this, um, which uh, I think has greatly discomfited the North Koreans. Um, it is not yet enough. Um, but I should also point out that as we have been gradually successful in cutting back the other range of revenue streams, into North Korea that have been used to facilitate uh, the military program there. The relative role and influence of China has increased, um, not by virtue of it having increased in aggregate terms, but in a percentage of what the North Koreans are able to get from the outside world. So China's leverage, in a sense, is now greater than ever, and we're working very hard to work with Chinese authorities to ensure that they live up to their responsibilities as an important power and a, a a good citizen in the non-proliferation regime to put the Dr. pressure Before on we the need to, I apologize, we're, we're running Sorry, out of time sir. here. We're going to lose our folks. Uh, Senator Gardner. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Ford. Uh, Ms. Bablet, thank you very much for your service. Uh, congratulations on the nominations, and I appreciate uh, your willingness to uh, perform the duties before you. Um, thanks, Mr. Chairman, as well, for holding the hearing today. Uh, Mr. Ford, is it the Trump administration's position to seek complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula? Uh, that is our objective, Senator. That's correct. And we talked about uh, in our in my office uh, whether that was China's goal or not. Senator Menendez talked about China. What is China's goal as it relates to the proliferation in North Korea? Uh, well, Senator, speaking only personally and not on behalf of the intelligence community uh, or anyone like that, um, my own view is that China is trying to figure out what its goal is. Um, the working assumption for many of us working on these issues has been in the past that China's principal objective is to ensure stability in the peninsula and to avoid what they see as a kind of parade of horribles. Um, were the Kim regime to collapse, were we to get into a war with the North Koreans or whatever else it might be, and that they have hitherto concluded that it is better to remain as a kind of grumpy facilitator and enabler of the North Korean regime's weapons of mass destruction. But, but complete, programs. verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is not China's goal. Um, I don't think it has been, but I think they are beginning to reconsider that and realizing that if they are in fact in favor of stability in the peninsula, um, the time is now for them to join us because the status quo is not one that points towards stability. It points only towards increasing risk and danger and uncertainty. And I think when it comes to that proliferation and the, the position that China is in right now is one reason why I was pleased, one of the reasons I was pleased that we moved away from the failed doctrine of strategic patience to a new doctrine of maximum pressure. And I do believe we have put additional pressures on North Korea that were not in place over the past several years. I believe we've put pressure on China uh, to help make sure we accomplish this CVID goal uh, in the, on the Korean Peninsula uh, and to enlist their support in that goal. But uh, I am concerned at the slow pace that we have taken with China. And again, the, the, the doctrine is and should be maximum pressure, not maximum cajoling. Uh, and so if we can continue the pressure on China uh, to the level it should be, we know over 5,000 businesses uh, that are doing business right now with, with North Korea in China, uh, start ratcheting that pressure up to a degree that we, we haven't yet so far, uh, then we will start to see uh, more results as a result of uh, the maximum pressure doctrine. So um, that's a discussion we can continue to have. Uh, how do we achieve this, uh, the CVID goal then, the complete, verifiable, irreversible uh, denuclearization? Uh, how do we achieve that strategy? How do we achieve the strategy as it relates to China? Well, I think, uh, as I indicated uh, a moment ago, the, one of the steps is to make it very clear um, through a, a range of tools that uh, it is very much to, to emphasize to the Chinese government the degree to which their strategic interest is not perhaps what they once assumed it to be. China's strategic interest, I would argue, and I think that recent events are increasingly making this very clear, and I hope that they are coming to realize it, um, their strategic interest now is very much aligned with ours um, in making every step possible to ensure that the North Korean regime changes its strategic course and adopts a policy of ratcheting back rather than ratcheting up the WMD and nuclear threats that they present uh, in the region. Um, it seems clear to me that the, you know, the, the status quo trajectory of the peninsula is downhill at an alarming and disturbing rate, and that China is now in a position of beginning to realize, perhaps not enough and not fast enough yet, but um, certainly the, the, the hope is that we can help them come to recognize that 
that the circumstances are not what they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago, and that the way to ensure that all the parade of horribles they do not wish to see happen, the way to ensure that those things don't happen is not to remain as a facilitator of, you know, a sort of a mm -hmm. uh, quiet enabler of weapons of mass destruction and missile programs in the Kim regime, uh, but in fact to join us in making sure that those threats are emphatically put back in the box so that the, the situation is brought back under control. Now, will you enter into negotiations with North Korea outside of the CVID, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization parameters? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Will, will you negotiate with North Korea outside of those parameters, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization? Um, I don't believe there's any anticipation of doing that. Uh, what Secretary Tillerson has said is that what we are looking for is some kind of an indication of North Korean seriousness to be finally willing to sit down and have that kind of a conversation. Uh, we have not seen that seriousness yet, and until such point as we do, we are endeavoring to steadily tighten the screws on the North Korean regime to incentivize uh, finally making that choice. In your role as international security non-proliferation, could you describe any cyber role that you might have? Um, well, to my knowledge center, there has not been much of one for the Bureau hitherto. Um, however, it is one of the roles of the Bureau to essentially scan the horizon, uh, making metaphorically, for emerging threats and emerging areas that may be uh, in need of you know, better nonproliferation norms or new nonproliferation norms or institutions or practices in the future. Um, I know that cyber issues are already emerging as one of the subjects for discussion within the Vassanar arrangement, which is an international um, dual use and conventional technology export control standards regime. Um, so cyber issues are emerging as a subject of increasing emphasis in the nonproliferation world. Um, it is not a terribly well-developed discipline at this point, but certainly, if confirmed, one of my responsibilities at ISN would be to make sure that we had an appropriate handle on emerging technologies and challenges out there that may need to be addressed in the future in ways perhaps analogous to how we have tried to address chemical and biological and radiological and nuclear uh, non-proliferation um, over the years, over the years hence. There may well be new areas in which that is very relevant. Ms. Bullitt. Uh, yes, thank you, Senator. I would like to start with the cyber issue. It is my understanding that the uh, Arms Control Verification Compliance Bureau uh, actually has had a role on uh, the cyber issue. We have uh, the Royal Weight. The ABC Bureau has provided support to the cyber coordinator. Uh, in fact, the uh, Nuclear Risk Reduction Center, which, as you know, is the 24-7, 365-day uh, communications hub with respect to verification and compliance issues on a broad range of international agreements, was uh, directly involved in the notification to the Russian Federation of uh, information that we had available that uh, the Russian Federation had, in fact, attempted to interfere uh, with our elections. In addction to that, the Verification Compliance Bureau, using the history, the long history, in uh, the implementation of a broad range of agreements, uh, has also been working with the interagency to ensure and with our allied uh, nations to ensure that we are thinking about uh, best practices, that we are thinking about emerging security challenges. In fact, the uh, AVC Bureau, the Arms Control Verification Compliance Bureau, has an office in the Bureau just dedicated to emerging security challenges. And uh, beyond the cyber issue, it's also looking at space 
security and challenges from Russian aggression, from Chinese aggression, and attempts to deny uh, unfettered access to space uh, by responsible parties. And if, if I may go back uh, to your question and uh, Senator Menendez's uh, references, while sanctions implementation and development is not in the ABC Bureau, but uh, you cannot delink the ABC Bureau from ISN or from the rest of the T family or from any discussion about sanctions. Number one, I believe that the ABC Bureau, by developing the evidence, confirming and verifying the evidence, builds the case to support a policy determination on whether or not to impose sanctions. Further, by leveraging the threat of sanctions, by leveraging the actual implementation and enforcement of sanctions, and not just sanctions specifically designed to address a particular bilateral or multilateral agreement, but that are targeting uh, the other actors, the other parties to those uh, agreements can certainly help fortify and strengthen our own capabilities in ensuring that, one, we do have verifiable, permanent uh, compliance with the range of commitments uh, and agreements, but also it serves our deterrence objectives, both nonproliferation writ large, and again, to deter rogue regimes or state parties to agreements, uh, not to continue their aggressive stance. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Pavlov. We need to move on. I apologize. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, both of you, for your willingness uh, to serve. Um, both of you have identified the administration's belief that the JCPOA is insufficient in many respects, and uh, the administration has made it clear they are seeking to strengthen or renegotiate the agreement. It's been a little hard for many of us in Congress to get a handle on exactly how the administration wants to go about this process, and so I want to ask you both. Um, about what the administration policy may be um, or what your recommendation may be to the administration or to Congress. To me, it seems as if there are four ways to go about changing the agreement, if you're of the opinion, as this administration is, that it needs to be changed. First, you could renegotiate with your partner, with the Iranians. Second, you could make changes to the agreement uh, unilaterally, but in coordination with your, um, with your European partners, make changes all together. You could make changes alone um, through executive actions of the administration, or you could ask Congress to make changes to the agreement. Um, and so I, I want to ask what your recommendation is going to be, I'll ask you, Ms. Pavlit, and then you, uh, Mr. Ford, uh, as to what the best course of action uh, should be uh, if you desire to change the terms of this agreement, and most specifically, um, what is your recommendation to Congress when the, um, when the president failed to certify under NARA? it was unclear whether he was asking us to pass legislation that would change the terms of the agreement. So um, what is the best course of action to try to uh, address insufficiencies that the administration has identified? And specifically, are you asking, are you gonna be expecting to be working with Congress to pass legislation that would change the terms of the agreement? Thank you, Senator. 
the focus of the ABC Bureau will be, and if confirmed, that will be my mantra, my overarching objective, is to whatever agreement we have, whether it's the existing JCPOA or a future agreement, that we are able to both unilaterally with our allied partners in support of the IEA, that we are able to verifiably confirm or not that Iran is in compliance with its obligations. Now, as a point of personal privilege, in light of my background, particularly with respect to Iran, I always found it, it was uh, most useful when there was unanimity of purpose, unanimity of mission from the entirety of the US government. So while I would not have a role on the actual development of the administration policy, I would just be feeding the information to the policymakers. I certainly uh, would prefer uh, if asked, and we'd recommend if asked and if confirmed, that uh, we do work, that the executive branch does uh, do in fact work closely with the Congress, particularly with this committee. Mr. Ford, I want to ask one more question, so let me turn turn to you. Are you what are you asking Congress to do here? Um, uh, thank you, Senator. Well, the, what, the, what the president said in his October 13th speech is that, well, he directed us in the administration to try to work both with Congress and with international partners to move forward on these issues. And, and I guess you could sort of think of those as two uh, parallel and complementary tracks. Um, with respect to the congressional piece of it, um, he, uh, there have been an, a, a, actually a series of ongoing discussions still with Congress on this topic in the hope of finding a constructive way forward in a number of respects. Um, one of them has to do with, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the challenge of the so-called sunset terms of the JCPOA, the fact that in, I think, eight to 13 years' time now, um, the restrictions upon the size of Iran's nuclear program will, will sunset pursuant to the, the, the terms of the JCPOA. Um, from the congressional legislative perspective, it may be possible to work with the Congress, we hope that it is, possible to work with Congress to change Iran's incentives with respect to the choices that it might make. But are you asking us to do something that would violate the terms of the agreement? Actually, in fact, Senator, we have been asking Congress, we have been working very hard to try to make sure that, that Congress does not do anything that would cause Iran immediately to, to run afoul. We've been trying to resist um, the, ins the insertion of so-called poison pill pieces uh, into the legislative framework. I mean, the hope is to be able to find a way to incentivize Iran to make choices that keep us from having enduring proliferation problems in the future, but not to blow up the deal. Let me ask you one, one th thank you, let me thank you for that. One quick question on Iran's ballistic missile program. I was proud to support the sanctions bill here that levies uh, new sanctions on Iran for their ballistic missile program. But let's be honest, Iran's ballistic missiles right now are not pointed at the United United States are pointed at Saudi Arabia. Simple question. Do you believe that Saudi Arabia's military buildup contributes to Iran's motivation to continue to develop their ballistic missile program? I'm confident that the Iranians would, would say so. I, if, if I were in Riyadh speaking personally, I would be very concerned by the path that Iran has taken over but the do you, but, but do you believe that that is part of their motivation? I'm... I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm not comfortable get, trying to get into the heads of Iranian leaders in that respect. I, I worry that there is a action-reaction dynamic in the Middle East, which is one of the reasons why I was so unhappy um, personally to see that the Iran deal, in fact, took the steps that it did to legitimate 
um, to provide legitimacy to and, and international acceptance of Iranian production of fissile material for fear that that would set in place a further action-reaction dynamic that would increase the proliferation pressures elsewhere in the region. Um, so I think it's part of our challenge as a policy community to try to do what we can to put that cat back in the bag, as it were, and part of that will be working to, um, to provide uh, the kind of solidarity uh, against Iran that we hope to achieve by working with our international partners across the range of, of Iranian activity. Part of it will be bolstering our relationships with others in the region. Historically speaking, at least, I think it is the solidity of the U.S. security relationship that has, over many decades since the dawn of the nuclear age, been very important to helping persuade countries that might otherwise have considered indigenous weaponization that that is not a not not a, not necessary and, and certainly not a wise choice, and that their needs can be met through um, through through other means. Um, I hope we can continue to do that and and meet these challenges in the Middle East as the years move forward, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, I'm very concerned to learn that the United States is engaged in active, ongoing discussions with both Saudi Arabia and Jordan on concluding a 123 nuclear cooperation agreements. These agreements are essential for ensuring that nuclear technologies and expertise that can be used to make nuclear weapons do not spread and that nuclear cooperation with the United States is not used as a cover, as a hedge against or a leg up on one's neighbors. And that's especially true in the Middle East, which remains a volatile, contentious region plagued by religious rivalries and proxy wars. In Iran, we have experienced firsthand how incredibly difficult it is to curb nuclear proliferation once the ball is rolling inside of that country and the deep unshakable suspicion that remains about its intentions on this committee across our country and across the world. So even as we were moving forward on this effort to uh, curb Iran's nuclear program, uh, Saudi Arabia warned the region that, quote, uh, the whole region could be plunged into a nuclear arms race and that if Iran goes for a nuclear program, quote, nothing can prevent us from doing it too, not even the international community. So that sounds like a recipe for trouble for me, and I, I would hate for the United States to be further exacerbating those tensions, especially in a part of the world blessed with such abundant solar and fossil resources that it could power the entire region's electricity uh, needs uh, alone without ever having to deal with the complications of nuclear power. So the Atomic Energy Act requires the President to keep the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, quote, fully and currently informed of any initiative or negotiation relating to a new or amended agreement for peaceful nuclear cooperation. It also mandates that Congress review the terms of any 123 agreement and give Congress the power to block these agreements. So it seems that at this point, the Trump administration has forgotten this. So I will be sending a letter shortly to request a few, a, a full and immediate briefing on these negotiations. Um, but for now, I am going to ask just some questions to try and understand better what the current status of these negotiations is. Uh, Mr. Ford, uh, and again, thank you both for your service to our country. Yes or no, is the United States at present negotiating terms of a 123 agreement with Saudi Arabia and Jordan? 
Uh, thank you, Senator. We are presently in discussions with uh, both the Saudis and the Jordanians uh, about one, two, three questions. That is something that is not new. We have been in on-again, off-again discussions of that sort uh, for some time, certainly predating the current administration. But uh, in the short answer is there are discussions uh, underway, at least. Did the Trump administration decide, or did Saudi Arabia and Jordan approach the Trump administration to restart or revitalize the 123 negotiations after January of 2017? Um, actually, the short answer is I don't know who spoke with whom first. I'm afraid I don't know, Senator. I'm sorry. Um, could you describe to us at what stage these negotiations are right now? Uh, they are still very preliminary. To my knowledge, there has not been any engagement of uh, technical experts uh, at this point. So you're saying at this point, neither Saudi Arabia nor Jordan have proposed specific terms or responded to terms proposed by the United States? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not at liberty to discuss these ongoing bilateral discussions in this forum. This is something that perhaps we would be able to discuss in a different context, Senator. Does the Trump administration believe the gold standard, the commitment not to enrich uranium or reprocess plutonium is a requirement in order to conclude terms for 123 agreements with these countries? Um, I would say, Senator, that we, it, is our, it remains U.S. policy, as it has been for some time, to seek the strongest possible nonproliferation protections in, in every instance. Is that the gold standard? Well, the strongest, the, the strongest that has yet been achieved is the gold standard with the United Arab Emirates. Also, is that your goal, to keep that standard? I would love to keep that standard in place if we can, Senator. Do you personally believe the gold standard is a requirement in order to conclude a 123 agreement with these countries? Uh, it is not a legal requirement. It is a desired outcome. Uh, have Saudi Arabia or Jordan asked for terms more permissive than the gold standard? Uh, I would go back to my earlier comment, Senator, that uh, it would be much easier to talk about ongoing bilateral negotiations in a closed forum. If we agree to anything less than the gold standard with Jordan or Saudi Arabia, how do you think the United Arab Emirates would respond? The United Arab Emirates has been an excellent partner in agreeing to the gold standard, but has a legal right under the terms of their 123 agreement to drop these nonproliferation provisions if others receive better terms. How do you think the United Arab Emirates would respond if there was no gold standard negotiated with Saudi Arabia? Well, I can't speak for them, Senator, but I think you are quite correct that there is a provision in their 123 agreement that would uh, allow them to, to initiate new discussions about the terms of their deal were someone else in the region to have gotten a different one. Do you believe the administration is meeting its requirement to keep Congress fully and currently informed about its current 123 negotiations with Saudi Arabia and Jordan? Um, I believe that it is, and that at such point as it is possible to have more to say, we would be delighted to have that briefing in a closed, uh, closed contact, Senator. And if you are confirmed, would you, be, would you commit to briefing this committee on the status of these negotiations in a classified non-public setting within 30 days of your confirmation? Um, I would, Senator. As a longtime Senate staffer, you can be assured that uh, close cooperation and communication uh, with this body, as well as with the House, uh, would be an enduring priority of mine. Yeah. So my, my problem, Mr. Chairman, with this entire area is that there are now auctions in Mexico, three cents a kilowatt hour for solar, three cents a kilowatt hour below coal, below natural gas. So in Saudi Arabia, the one thing we do know is it's sunny 365 days a year. Uh, and we know that the price of solar has completely uh, plummeted. They also are flaring you know, their own you know, excess fossil fuels. So we're, we're heading into a very dangerous uh, area here. 
uh, as the, our concern about nuclear proliferation continues to expand in that region. We have an agreement that keeps the Iranian program under control, but again, what has made it possible for them to move forward is the fact that they had already been given access to uh, nuclear technology. If we continue down this pathway, uh, then there's a recipe for disaster which we are absolutely creating ourselves uh, with our own policies. And so I just think it's a very important area for us to pursue. Uh, and, uh, and I think this committee should be briefed immediately on what the staff And then the ranking is. member has a, a final question too, but let me just ask real quick in that vein. We talk about the UAE agreement as the gold standard for restraint. The JCPOA then happened and it allows Iran to retain and, and to even grow its enrichment program. Is it your opinion that that agreement has made it harder to do more UAE type deals or easier? Uh, I would say, Mr. Chairman, that the international agreement to allow Iran a fissile material production capability has made it considerably more difficult to ask gold standard type agreements, or indeed any type of limitations upon enrichment or reprocessing technology of others. The ranking member. I, I'm going to just very quickly comment on Senator Markey and, and, and Senator Rubio's point, because I agree with both. But if we don't draw a line in the Middle East, it's going to be all out proliferation. So I just will express my own view, but I think it's of many members of this committee in the Senate that we need to maintain the UAE standards in our one, two, three agreements in that region. There's just too many other countries that could start proliferation issues that would be against our national security interests and interests of the region. So I want to thank Senator Markey for, for raising that because, uh, yes, we, we get involved in the process. Earlier, the better. So uh, uh, as a former staffer here, I look forward to, to us getting engaged before decisions get beyond the point where our only option would be to vote against a one, two, three agreement. Uh, I want to get to another area, uh, Dr. Ford, that you should be very comfortable with, and that is carrying out the intent of this committee in, in the United States Senate and Congress in the Russia sanction bill that we passed. You commented on it, and we were... Um, I, was, I, I learned a little bit today that it, that will come under your portfolio if confirmed. And our law is pretty specific. There are mandatory sanctions. We give 180 days for uh, improvements in the process by the Russian defense and intelligence sector. That expires on January the 29th. The dates are pretty specific. Are you committed to working with this committee and working with the uh, with uh, I might tell you the Banking Committee is also very interested in it, Senator Crapo and Senator Brown. Armed Services is very interested, Senator McCain and Senator Reid, as well as this committee, to make sure the law is carried out. Uh, will you be working with this committee to make sure that that law, in fact, is carried out? Uh, if confirmed, Senator, absolutely I would. Um, the, uh, the, the so-called CATSA sanctions are a new area for me. It is not an area that my directorate at the NSC currently deals with. Um, so I've been, I'm something of a newcomer to this as well, and I'm trying to learn it as I go along. Um, it is very important, I, I completely agree, it would be very important that these things be implemented and be implemented well and effectively. It is a very complex process. Um, a list of Russian entities has been promulgated by the Secretary of State, I believe uh, October 27th or sometime thereabouts, um, pursuant to a delegation of authority that came from the President a month before that. So this is a very new and emerging area. It is the responsibility of the State Department to identify 
those who have engaged in significant transactions with entities that are listed on that list that corresponds to a number of entities of the Russian defense and intelligence sectors. Um, and then I think it is also the responsibility once a transaction of significance since the effective date of the act has been identified to apply to them uh, a series of you know, at, at least five and as many as at least five from a list of as many as 12 penalties um, to those engaged in those transactions. Um, while all these determinations are going on, which are you know, both complex factual and policy determinations, at the same time, it is part of Secretary Tillerson's direction that uh, we would need to be coordinating very closely with uh, international partners and with other stakeholders in the U.S. interagency to make sure that we work with international partners who engage or may have engaged or may in the future engage uh, in transactions with Russian entities in order to help them minimize any exposure they may have, help them understand how we are approaching these things. Um, and this is an enormously complex process that I would have, it, it, uh, it will take a lot of doing to put this into place, but I'm certainly committed to trying to make this work as well as possible. So. Let, let me make this clear. We made it more complicated basically at the request of our international partners and the administration. So they have flexibility. But the intent was very clear that these are mandatory sanctions and that they need to be enforced in a timely way. So I appreciate that we want to coordinate with our allies, and I agree with that. I would hope that some of the stakeholders would also include the members of the Congress who have been engaged in this process as you go through this process. But I would just urge you that January 29th date we expect to be complied with. We are not looking for extensions of that date, and I would just urge you to, to be mindful that good faith here must is two, is, is, goes two ways, and there will be other legislation that will be considered in the future, and I can assure you that if this law is not complied with, some of the discretion that's included in the statute won't be included in future enactments. So it's a good faith, back and forth, with the administration to have flexibility. But these are mandatory sanctions, and they must be applied uh, based upon Russia's behavior. And that's, you have some discretion, but they got to be applied if they haven't complied with the law. One last point on... That message clearly received, Senator. One last point on sanctions. And here I, I've seen similar comments made by the administration about Turkey's acquisitions of Russia technology, contrary to their NATO commitments, but also in violation of the Russian sanction law. Uh, I, I understand you may not be prepared to answer that question today, but I, this committee is going to be very interested in how we treat a NATO partner violating our Russia sanctions uh, provisions that they make it clear that this is mandatory sanctions and sanctions need to be applied, even if it's a NATO partner. The short answer is, Yes, that sounds like a very challenging determination under the statute, but rest assured that I fully understand the mandatory nature of the sanctions and that this would be a focus of, uh, of great concern. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I think it would be an important priority for me, if confirmed as Assistant Secretary, to, to make sure that the staffing and resources of the Bureau were appropriately aligned to making sure that we are able to do that work to which you're referring, Senator. And, and Dr. Pablit, I just want to underscore one additional area of concern that has not come out and that is uh, the Russia veto of the joint investigative mechanism under the chemical weapons uh, inspection regime. Uh, Jim, that's going to present challenges as how we enforce 
the uh, uh, prohibition on the use of chemical weapons, particularly in Syria, without the inspection regime contemplated. Uh, I know that Ambassador Haley has commented on this, but I want to make sure that's on your radar screen, that you have an effective way to, to, to enforce uh, the chemical weapons bans. Absolutely, Senator. It has been on the administration's radar screen and has been on my radar screen uh, from the onset. I would like to uh, point out that the United States has not given up on uh, trying to hold the Syrian regime accountable. I uh, would like to point out to the meeting of the uh, Executive Council of the uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons that took place last week. And uh, regrettably, the Russian Federation once again demonstrated that it is not a responsible partner and a responsible stakeholder internationally partnering up with the Iranian regime to block uh, even accountability at the uh, OPCW Executive uh, Council. We are currently engaged in the Conference of State Parties of the OPCW that began yesterday. And uh, I assure you that it is a priority for the administration to ensure that we have the necessary support a coalition to hold the Syrian regime accountable because we understand that this is not just about the Syrian regime's actions, not just about the actions of non-state actors within Syria. This is about sending a message to the world that the United States will not stand idly by and not allow the use of chemical weapons in any theater, in any scenario, by any actor or non-state actor. Thank you. And I thank both our witnesses again for their response today. Absolutely. Thank you both for, for being here today and um, for your service and your willingness to continue to serve. Uh, I think it's been a very good and informative hearing, and uh, we look forward to moving forward on the process. The, the record for this hearing will remain open for 48 hours, and uh, for the members and their staff, uh, the uh, questions for the record, uh, we hope to have them in by close of business on Thursday. So without objection, the hearing is adjourned.